I want to take you back in time. I want to take you back in time to a hot August night in 1980 and tell you a story about that time. It's story time with Dr. Peter. I'm 11 years old. I'm recovering from a third spinal surgery after two previous cervical fusions failed. I'm feeling terrible. I'm in a dark, cold hospital room in a university hospital just out of post-op and back on the pediatric unit, 104 miles from home, immobilized in a full body cast and a halo brace, recovering from puking from the general anesthetic, and I'm afraid that this surgery failed just like the other two did. My confidence in surgeons is at a low ebb. The room smells of antiseptic and isolation. Back in those unenlightened hospital days, visiting hours were really limited, so my parents can't be there with me. But I'm not alone. My sick toddler roommate is lying face down on his crib, sobbing inconsolably. No one comes for him. Nothing can be done for him. This will pass, the professionals had told me when I pressed the call button for him. So I don't bother with the call button anymore. I can't think of anything to do for him either. I feel like he does. We're both miserable. I am in the darkest hour of my life to that point. And in my 11-year-old mind, I'm beginning to wonder if the rest of my life will be just a series of horrible, painful, failed surgeries, nighttime isolation, and helplessness. So, what does little Petey Guy do at this point? My Aunt Marlene always used to call me Petey Guy when I was that age. So Petey Guy starts to sing. That's right, I start singing. And do you know what I was singing? Was I singing the 1959 Julie Andrews version of My Favorite Things from The Sound of Music? No, it wasn't that. Was I singing the Beatles 1969 classic Here Comes the Sun by George Harrison? And it wasn't that. Was it the 1977 show tune, The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow from the musical Annie? Nope. Guess again. Gloria Gaynor's smash hit in 1977, I Will Survive? Wrong. How about Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac, also in 1977? No. How about Don't Stop Believing by Journey? That was it, right? Come on, people. Don't Stop Believing came out in 1981. We're in 1980. So chronologically, that wouldn't make sense. No, I was singing a different song. I was singing a darker song than any of those. I was singing a 1970s song with lyrics written by 14-year-old Michael Altman, put to music by his father, Robert Altman, and sung by Johnny Mandel. A song written for the 1970 movie M.A.S.H. Now, some of you may be following me now. I was singing a song called Suicide is Painless. You're probably familiar with the tune of this song. After the surprise success of the 1970 movie, Robert Altman chose chose Suicide is Painless to be the instrumental opening for the hugely popular MASH comedy drama series that ran on CBS from 1972 to 1983. But even though you know the tune, you might not be familiar with the gaunt, haunting, despairing lyrics of this song. Here's the opening stanza. 
Through early morning fog, I see visions of the things to be, the pains that are withheld for me. I realize and I can see that suicide is painless. It brings on many changes and I can take or leave it if I please. So a little backstory here. We got to go back a little further in time, back into the 70s. My grandpa Roberts had a Magnus Chord organ. And some of you who are in your 50s and 60s and 70s would know what a Magnus Chord organ was. They were very popular in the 1960s, and they were very popular in rummage sales in the 1970s. They were out on the secondhand market. You pressed a button with your left hand to play the chords, and you played the keyboard with your right hand. We had one at home, too. And at Grandpa's house, going through his songbooks, I saw the theme for MASH. Well, I was familiar with MASH. Everybody knew MASH. And it was 1979. Everybody knew MASH. And so it was one of the very few songs I learned how to play on the Magnus Chord organ. And I liked to sing the lyrics of the songs that I played. Now, those lyrics from Suicide is Painless didn't particularly resonate with me until that post-surgical night back in 1980 in the dark when I'm sick, when I'm alone with that crying toddler, when my 11-year-old heart was so burdened and so breaking. You know, nobody noticed my singing about suicide that night. My toddler roommate didn't seem to care. And it wasn't until almost 40 years later that I ever told anyone about it. Welcome to the podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. Thank you for being here with me. I no longer go by PD Guy. I am better known as clinical psychologist Peter Malinowski. And the reason for this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast is to help you toward loving God, loving your neighbor, and loving yourself in ordered, healthy, and holy ways. It's all about you tolerating being loved and about you loving others. It's about you living out the two great commandments to the hilt with all of your being. It's about overcoming your natural obstacles to reaching more of your potential, both in the natural and in the spiritual realms. Because we take on the tough topics in this podcast, today we are getting into the difficult and complex topic of suicide. Suicide. Even the word can send shivers up the spine. This episode is number 76, and it's titled, The Darkness of Suicide. What do secular experts say? It's released on July 12th, 2021, and today we are looking at the best of current secular psychological and sociological research. In episode 73, I told you about St. Augustine in his De Doctrina Christiana, chapter 40. That's all about taking the best of knowledge wherever you can find it, right? All branches of learning have good in them. We can learn from what the secular experts talk about. We talked about in episode 73, Catholic with a small c. So I wanted to start this series of episodes on suicide by bringing to you the best of what the secular experts have to offer. In future episodes, we'll have a lot more to say about the wisdom of the Catholic Church on suicide, 
And we'll also be bringing in more of internal family systems thinking about parts and suicide. There's really fascinating stuff there. I'm really excited to get there. We're also going to discuss in future episodes the impact of suicide on parents, spouses, siblings, children, and friends who experience suicide through the death of a loved one. We're going to get into all of that, but today, today we're going to bring in all kinds of background. We're really going to try to understand what is happening with suicide from the perspective of the secular experts. This is a critical topic, suicide. A 2017 Rasmussen Reports National Telephone and Online Survey of 1,000 American adults finds that 55% of us know someone who has committed suicide. One of my classmates in my eighth grade class committed suicide when I was 19 or 20 years old. Another classmate of mine who was two years behind me in high school committed suicide again uh, when he was about 20 years old. So it's really, really common. Let's start with an etymological analysis of the word suicide. You know how much I like to break down words on this podcast. So it's time for word lore. Where does the English word suicide come from? Well, it comes from the Latin word suicidium or suicide and That's derived from the Latin word sui, which means of oneself, and chidium, a killing, from chidere, to slay. So it means to slay oneself or to strike oneself. And it worked its way into the English language in about the 1650s. So let's go and see, like, how big of a problem really is suicide. Let's take a look at some of the research. Let's take a look at, like, what the epidemiological studies have to say about suicide. So let's run through some fast facts. How many suicides worldwide each year? About 800,000. About 10 people in every 100,000 people die each year from suicide. Worldwide, suicide accounts for 1.4% of all deaths. And there's a wide range of suicide rates per country. Uh, The lowest suicide rate that I was able to find was in Jamaica, and they had 1.56 deaths per 100,000 people per year, and the highest was in Greenland, 98.3 deaths per 100,000 inhabitants. That's about 63 times higher. Now, we know that sometimes you have measurement issues and so forth, but you can see that there's a wide range and easily 10 times, 20 times higher in in some countries than others. So how many suicides do we have in the U.S.? So I'm drawing from data from the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institute of Mental Health. And according to the CDC, in the year 2020, which is the most recent year I could get this data, obviously, there were 44,834 recorded suicides. That's 14.5 deaths per 100,000 population in the U.S. Some interesting things, though. U.S. men are more than three times as likely as, as U.S. women to die from suicide. U.S. men, three times more likely, actually more than three times, about three and a half times more likely than U.S. women to die from suicide. But women, U.S. women, are 1.4 times as likely as men to attempt suicide. Women use less lethal means and there, and women are less likely to die from their suicide attempts than men. 
That has a lot to do with the means that men and women choose. Men are much more likely to choose firearms, which are very lethal. And about 50% of suicides involve a firearm. 29% of suicides are by suffocation, and 13% are by poisoning. Those are the top three. They account for uh, over 90% of suicides. What about Catholics and suicides? We have any data on Catholics? Why, yes, we do. And that data actually goes all the way back to Emil Durkheim's pioneering research in 1897. Emil Durkheim was a French philosopher and an early sociologist from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He really was one of the principal architects, along with Max Weber, of the modern disciplines, the modern social sciences. And in 1897, he published a work in French called Les Suicides, and he found that Catholics have a significantly lower suicide rate than Protestants. And that tendency has been persistent. It goes all the way up to the present day. There have been studies that have come out as recently as 2014 and 2016 that have replicated that effect, that Catholics have a lower suicide rate than Protestants. Now, there's been a whole lot of speculating about why that is. Some has to do with the fact that Protestant denominations tend to be more accepting of suicide than Catholicism. And some have speculated that there's a more communitarian approach in Catholicism and more of an individualistic approach to religion and faith among Protestants. There's a lot of debates about what the causal factors really are. But the fact remains that that finding of Catholics suiciding less than Protestants has been held up for over 120 years. Emile Durkheim, he actually came up with the first model of suicide, of the reasons why people suicide. He actually brought together this, these two axes. Now, on his, in his diagram, the x-axis of his diagram, that's social regulation. That's the social regulation dimension. And the y-axis was the social integration aspect. He's very much into looking at social effects and how one's socialization, social connection, social isolation, how social factors impact suicide. So he came up with basically four quadrants to describe different suicide attempts. Now, I'm going to draw a significant amount from an article on the Management Development Institute of Singapore's website. This article is by Dr. Amir Singh, and it was published on March 30th, 2020. So reviewing Emil Durkheim's four types of suicide, they are egotistic suicide, altruistic suicide, anomic suicide, and fatalistic suicide. Those are the four types of suicide that he proposed in the first taxonomy that I could find of suicide. So egotistic suicide, this corresponds to a low level of social integration. All right, when you're not well integrated into a social group, it can lead to you feeling that you don't matter to anyone. When you're socially isolated, when you don't have a place in society, that's really destructive. So this is a suicide of a self-centered person who lacks altruistic feelings. He's cut off from the main body of society. He sees himself as alone, as an outsider. He sees himself as a social outcast. 
these types of individuals have trouble fitting in. They have problems adjusting to groups. Their socialization was often sketchy, not very solid in their upbringing. And so they really struggle with loneliness or excessive individuation, right? These can be your Marlboro men, your rugged individualists. Those are the ones that are more likely to commit an egotistic suicide. All right, well, let's take a look at altruistic suicide. What's that? Well, that corresponds to having too much social integration, according to Emil Durkheim. This occurs when a group or a culture so dominates the life of an individual that there really isn't any individuality. The community is so much more important than the individual, right? So group involvement is too high. There's so much investment in staying in the group that they are willing to kill themselves. They're willing to kill themselves for the benefit of the group or for the cause that the group believes in. So some examples of this from Dr. Amir Singh include the Japanese kamikaze pilots of World War II. The kamikaze pilots believed in their nation's cause so much that they were willing to sacrifice themselves. All right, so that's the concept of altruistic suicide. It's got this self-sacrificing component for the group. The third group that Emil Durkheim discusses is the anomic suicide. And that occurs when one has an insufficient amount of social regulation. This comes from the term anomie, meaning aimlessness or despair. It's an inability to reasonably expect life to be predictable, to make sense. And you can see this when some kind of social equilibrium begins to break down. For example, a bankruptcy. Or it could be something positive, like winning the lottery, but something that really disrupts the expected social patterns. The idea of anomic suicide is that the contributing factor is this lack of social regulation and that it occurs during high levels of stress and frustration, sudden unexpected changes in situations, for example, job loss, Disappointment and stress that happen from situational factors with big social components, that's what drives people to anomic suicide. And the last category, fatalistic suicide. This results from too much social regulation. And this is where one follows the same routine day after day. There's nothing good to look forward to. Everything's the same. One day blends into another in this gray unvarying routine. And this is more likely to happen according to Durkheim for prisoners, right? The prisoner, the slave commits suicide because there is no hope for the social conditions to improve. There's also often this tight regulation, extreme rules, high expectations that are so constricting, so confining. And this can happen in modern day cultures that are very communal. For example, Dr. Singh makes the argument that South Korean celebrity Kim Jong-un ended his life due to severe depression and the pressure of being in the spotlight because he was a well-known celebrity, felt that he had to continue to perform, that the societal demands on him were so high that there was just no way out. And so he took his life. 
All right, so I think there's some real significant limitations to Emil Durkheim's understanding, but that's the, a very standard taxonomic categorization of suicides. I think we also need to mention inadvertent or accidental suicides. So, for example, when someone dies of a drug overdose, they intended to take, uh, you know, they intended to take the heroin, but they didn't know it was laced with fentanyl, much more potent, much more powerful, that killed them. So, drug overdose leading to death. Another example we've already talked about in episode sixty-nine, and that is autoerotic asphyxiation. Right, that's also known as the pass out challenge or flatlining or the space monkey. This is where people strangle themselves or each other to experience a euphoric high. They're looking for that the intense pleasure that comes from oxygen deprivation to the brain. And when you push that too far, it's easy it's easy to wind up dead. And so again, they're not seeking suicide, but it's coming from their actions. There's also some experts that discuss indirect suicide, which can happen by not taking care of oneself, like having poor health habits. For example, if you have advanced stage diabetes and you're not regulating your diet, you're not taking your insulin, it's very easy because of your fragile health conditions to to slip into diabetic comas and things like that where you die. Risky driving can be a way of indirect suicide, excessive alcohol and drug use, smoking, things like that. One final category that I would bring in here is assisted suicide, also known uh, by the euphemism of mercy killing. We're not going to talk about that today. We'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about Catholic aspects of suicide, but that is another category. So let's start talking about risk factors for suicide. These are the ones, I'm going to give you the ones that are commonly cited in the press. And I'm going to start with an article by psychologist Nancy Schimpelfening, which was published by Very Well Mind in an article on February 19th, 2021. And she lists a number of very common risk factors. These include mental illness, traumatic stress, substance use, impulsivity, loss or a fear of loss, hopelessness, chronic pain, medical illness, feeling like a burden to others, social isolation, a cry for help, and accidental suicide. So let's go through these a little bit more. If you start to break down the research findings on predictors, on risk factors that tend to predict suicide, we look at mental illness as being one of them. The most common one here is severe depression. This is where the blue deepens into black. Bipolar disorder, we talked about that. And that can happen both in the manic phase or in the depressed phase. So we've got the orange there. We talked about the orange and the blue in the last episode. Borderline personality disorder, eating disorders, schizophrenia. Now, I have a very different understanding of what's going on with these conditions than most secular psychologists. I tend to look at things through the lens of parts, through this multiplicity of self, and it really helps to make sense of things. We're going to talk about that more later. So I'm, I'm not fond of this whole process of diagnosing in this way, but I think it's important that you know that these are the types of risk factors that secular experts are listing. Traumatic stress, okay, we'll have more to say about that. Substance use, okay, one of the reasons why substance abuse 
increases the risk of suicide is because of the disinhibiting effect that many substances have on people's behavioral patterns. Loss or a fear of loss. Okay, now these can include things like academic failure, being arrested, being imprisoned, being bullied or shamed or humiliated, financial problems, the end of a close friendship or a romantic relationship, could be job loss, could be the loss of family or friends, acceptance in various ways, could be the loss of social status. So there are a number of things here that bring up loss. I think it's a really critical one, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later when I give you what I think the primary causes of suicide are. So another categorization comes from the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. This is a major, major national organization dedicated to the prevention of suicide. And they list the following as risk factors. A prior suicide attempt, a previous suicide attempt that did not result in death, that is a predictor. Misuse or abuse of alcohol or other drugs. Mental disorders, particularly depression and other mood disorders. They also list access to lethal means. Remember that 50% of completed suicides involve a firearm, so lethal means are there. Also, knowing someone who died by suicide, particularly a family member, and that also can lead to different clusters of suicides breaking out. That happens a lot in high schools. Young people are exposed to friends and classmates and colleagues that have committed suicide, and that actually increases the risk. Social isolation, chronic disease and disability, you know, those are the medical problems. Lack of access to behavioral health care, that is counseling and psychotherapy. Now, the Suicide Prevention Resource Center breaks out precipitating factors. So these are more than risk factors. These are like the triggers. These are the things that can kind of push people over the edge. And that includes the end of a relationship or marriage, the death of a loved one, an arrest, or serious financial problems. Uh, relatively recently, we had the death by suicide of a Robin Hood investor who had believed that he owed several hundred thousand dollars in on his trading platform and it was his debt nearly wasn't was not nearly that large but wrecking but seeing that he owed that several hundred thousand dollars because he was trading on leverage is believed by many to be a contributing factor to his suicide and there's lawsuits now filed by his family against robin hood to try to to try to seek redress for their alleged mismanagement of their online trading platform so now i want to discuss the myths about suicide. And I'm drawing this from the Nevada Division of Public and Behavioral Health Office of Suicide Prevention. They have a great little article on myths and facts of youth suicide. And they draw from resources like the National Mental Health Association, the Youth Suicide Prevention Education Program, and the Trevor Project. So I'm going to go through these with my commentary, the myths and the facts that they present. Because this is a, a summary of information about suicide that I think is valuable for you to have. Myth. Talking about suicide or asking someone if they feel suicidal will encourage suicide attempts. Fact. Talking about suicide provides the opportunity for communication. Fears shared are more likely to diminish, right? The first step, according to this document, of in encouraging a person with thoughts of suicide to live comes from talking about those feelings. Absolutely. Being able to share those. And often it just takes a simple inquiry just to find out like what the person is intending to start that conversation. 
Now, you want to be careful about those conversations. We want to be thoughtful about them. But one of the things that is really important is to be able to articulate what's happening inside. If people can put their experience into words, they are much less likely to enact it. Myth. Young people who talk about suicide never attempt suicide or die by suicide. Fact. Talking about suicide can be a plea for help and it can be a late sign in the progression toward a suicide attempt. Right? Some people believe that if at least if he's talking about it, he's not going to do it. Nope, that's not true. Well, those who are at risk for suicide will often show multiple signs apart from talking about suicide and they'll also talk about it if they have the, if they have the opportunity. So what you need to do in those circumstances is to find appropriate counseling assistance. You can ask if the person is thinking about making a suicide attempt, ask whether there's a plan, and, and to consider the completeness of the plan and how lethal the plan is. If it doesn't seem that lethal or it doesn't seem that complete, don't trivialize it. Still take it seriously. All suicidal intentions are serious. We need to acknowledge them. All right, so... And, the, and we want to be able to connect the person to resources, professional resources that can help them. Myth. Suicide attempts or deaths happen without warning. Fact. The survivors of a suicide often say that the intention was hidden from them. To these experts, it's more likely that the intention was just not recognized. All right. Now, I think there's some exceptions to this, but I think it generally holds true. Oftentimes... The warning signs were telegraphed, but they weren't picked up. The warning signs were transmitted, but nobody heard them, right? Just like nobody heard what I was singing in that hospital room on that August night in 1980, the warning signs are often not heeded. So let's go through those. These are really important. These are warning signs that a suicide attempt may be imminent. So these include the recent suicide or death by other means of a friend or relative, previous suicide attempts, preoccupation with themes of death or expressing suicidal thoughts. We talked about depression, but also conduct problems, conduct disorder, problems with adjustment, substance abuse. If you notice somebody giving away prized possessions or making a will or making other final arrangements, that's another sign. Sudden and extreme changes in eating habits, losing or gaining weight, withdrawal from family and friends, other behavioral changes, dropping out of group activities. You might notice personality changes, nervousness, angry outbursts, impulsive behavior, reckless behavior, or apathy, right? It might be about apathy, apathy about appearance, which is unusual for that person, apathy about health. You might see frequent irritability. You might see crying that doesn't seem to have an explanation. Lingering expressions of unworthiness, of failure, a lack of interest in the future, time horizons getting very narrow, and maybe also, and this is a significant one, it's kind of counter, and it's kind of counterintuitive to a lot of people, but a sudden lifting of spirits, especially if there's other indications of suicide at risk, sometimes people feel a lifting of spirits because they've made a decision to end their lives. All right, myth. If a person attempts suicide and survives, they will never make a further attempt. No, uh, a suicide attempt can be an indicator of future attempts, and it's likely that the seriousness, the lethality of the attempt, 
will increase with the next attempt, right? So the more attempts, the more lethal they get typically. Myth, once a person is intent on suicide, there's no way of stopping them. Fact, suicides can be prevented. People can be helped. Many suicidal crises are relatively short-lived, and we're going to talk a lot about that, and it makes so much sense when you start understanding it in the from the perspective of parts, through the lens of parts, those, those modes of operating that we get into. Right? So immediate practical help by staying with the person, encouraging them to talk, helping them to make a crisis plan, that all can be literally life-saving. Right, Such immediate help is valuable in a times of crisis, but you also want to get the person connected to longer-term help, right? professional help, if there is significant suicidality. Myth. People who threaten suicide are just seeking attention. Fact. Think of it as calling for help. Right? There's often this, this t- attention-seeking stuff can be really pejorative. It can be really kind of a cut-down, you know, referring to people as drama queens or things like that. We don't want to dismiss suicide risk as simply being an attention-gaining device. That's really a heavy, heavy way to try to get attention. It needs to be taken seriously. Myth. Only certain types of people become suicidal. Fact. Everyone has the potential for suicide. I actually do believe that. I do believe there is the there but for the grace of God go I. There are disposing conditions that can lead to suicide attempts or deaths. Um, But situational factors can drive people to extremes. Think about my example. I was a relatively well-adjusted, happy little 11-year-old, right? But extreme circumstances led to very intense feelings, led to very intense states of being, led to very intense modes of operating. Now, I don't believe that I was at significant risk for actually ending my life. And I was so incapacitated, so unable to move that it wouldn't have been that easy anyway. But I can see how people can, with certain situational factors, be brought to the brink of suicide. It's not that uncommon. Myth. Suicide is painless. Remember Michael Altman's song? But the fact is that many suicidal methods are very painful, and fictional portrayals of suicide do not usually include the reality of the pain. It might be that 14-year-old Michael Altman, who wrote the lyrics for Suicide is Painless, he might not have the full story. Myth, depression, and self-destructive behavior are rare in young people. Fact, there is a lot of depression and there is a lot of self-harming behavior in young people. Depression may manifest itself in ways that are different from adults, but there's a lot of depression in young people. Myth, once a young person thinks about suicide, they will forever think about suicide. Fact, that's just simply not so. Many people have a distorted perception of their actual life situation And they also don't really understand what kinds of solutions are available to them. But with support, with constructive assistance from people that really care for them and are informed about this, people can really, really turn around. Suicidality, suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, suicidal desires or impulses do not have to become chronic. Myth. The only effective intervention for suicide comes from professional psychotherapists with extensive experience in the area. You know what? Lots of people besides psychotherapists can help people that are suicidal, 
right? There's lots of ways that emotional support can be given, that encouragement can be given. You know, there's lots of ways that other people in the person's life can be helpful. Myth. Most young people thinking about suicide never seek or ask for help with their problems. Fact. Evidence shows that they often tell their school peers of their thoughts and plans. That is actually, again, something that a lot of people don't know. There's a lot of sharing among peers, but oftentimes it doesn't translate to effective action. Adolescents are more likely than adults to signal the need for help through nonverbal gestures than to express their situation verbally to others. Myth, young people thinking about suicide are always angry when someone intervenes and they will resent that person afterwards. That is not true. Sometimes young people are defensive. Sometimes they resist help at first. Sometimes those barriers are imposed to test how much people really care and how prepared they really are to help. Are they really willing to enter into the phenomenological world of the adolescent? And you know what? For adolescents, it's a huge relief to have someone genuinely care about them and to be able to understand the emotional burdens that they're carrying. That's actually something that later can be really experienced by the adolescent with gratitude. Myth, people thinking about suicide are insane or mentally ill. And that again is not true. People generally aren't happy, desperate. They can be angry, but that does not meet the legal definition of insanity. Myth, suicide is much more common in young people from lower socioeconomic status areas you know what? The causes of suicidal behavior cut across all kinds of socioeconomic boundaries. There is no definitive link between socioeconomic and status and suicide in adolescence. Myth, every death is preventable. Well, the fact is, is that no matter how well-intentioned, alert, and diligent people's efforts are, there is no way of preventing all suicides from occurring. People have free will. That is a summary of what the Nevada Division of Public and Behavioral Health, their Office of Suicide Prevention had in their fact sheet. But I want to go deeper. Let's go to what I call the reaction trio. Now, the the members of this reaction trio do not spring up spontaneously. The reaction trio are in the middle of causal chains with regard to suicide. Well, the first member of the reaction trio is despair. The second member is desperation. And the third is rage. Despair. What is despair? It's a failure of hope. It's when hope is lost. But there's reasons why that hope was lost. Despair doesn't just sort of spring up from nowhere It's an effect of what went before, and it's a cause of what goes after. That's also true of desperation, right? Desperation is an effect of what came before, and it's a cause of what happens later. And the same thing about rage. Rage is a reaction. There's a reaction to some kind of at least perceived injustice from what went before, And it's a causal factor in what comes after. Some people commit suicide in an effort to punish others. Some may seek to punish God. We'll talk more about that in future episodes. 
But I don't think that those three are the core principal reasons. Here's what I think the primary reasons are, the first causes, if you will, of suicide. Unmet attachment needs and unmet integrity needs. Now, we reviewed these attachment needs and these integrity needs in great detail in episode 62. Episode 62 was all about attachment needs and integrity needs, but let's review them really briefly here. Attachment needs. The first one, a felt sense of safety and protection, a deep sense of security felt in the bones. Second attachment need, feeling seen and known and heard and understood, that felt attunement. Third attachment need, felt comfort and reassurance. Fourth attachment need, feeling valued, delighted in, cherished by others. And the fifth attachment need, felt support for the best self, that the other person really has my best interests at heart. Those five attachment needs from Brown and Elliot. And then also the integrity needs. The integrity needs like, I exist. And my existence is separate from others. And my identity is stable over time and across different situations. There's this continuity and I can regulate myself, that I have some self-control. The fifth one, that I'm integrated, that I have coherent interconnections that help me make sense of my experience, that there's self-cohesion within me. The sixth one, that I'm active, that I have agency, that I can function effectively in the world. The seventh, that I'm morally good, that I'm ontologically or essentially good, that I have intrinsic value and worth apart from others' opinions. The eighth one, that I can make sense of my experience in the world around me. And the ninth one, that I have mission and purpose in life. We also need to know that we can make good choices, that we can seek what's good, true, and beautiful in life. So I believe that if if you really have these attachment needs met, if you really have these integrity needs met, the likelihood of suicide goes way, way down. The protective factors that are offered by Nancy Schimpelfening uh, in that Very Well Mind article, here's what she says. She says, effective behavioral health care, that's the first one. Second one, connection to individuals, family, community, and social institutions. Okay. Third one, life skills, problem-solving skills, coping skills, the ability to adapt to change. Okay. Fourth one, self-esteem and a sense of meaning and purpose in life. Well, we talked about that as an essential integrity need, so I'm totally on board with that one. And the fifth one, cultural and religious and personal beliefs that discourage suicide. Okay. See, I want to get, though, to the core. I really want to get to the core, which, again, I believe are meeting those attachment needs, meeting those integrity needs, right? And we're going to talk more about that when we, when we locate these needs within parts, within parts of us, because understanding how these attachment needs and how these integrity needs are held by parts, are understood by parts, are experienced by parts of us, are going to help us to see ourselves and others in more dimensions, really to flesh out much more of the reality of who we are and how we're doing. So, 
In this episode, we focused on the secular literature. In the next episode, we're going to look at the junction of the psychological and the spiritual. We're really going to get into the wisdom of the Catholic Church around suicide. We're going to see how that fits in with what the secular experts are saying. We're really going to get into suicide from a parts perspective. We're going to talk about the role of exiled parts in suicide. We're going to talk about the role of firefighter parts in suicide. And we're going to talk about the role of manager parts in suicide. And I think that's important because most of the conceptualizations that we discussed today in the secular literature, those were really good. There's a lot of good in them, but they seem to assume a homogenous personality, just one personality. We're also going to be getting into others' experience of suicide. You know, what happens with those left behind, right, after the death, the parents, the spouses, the friends, what happens in their systems, in their hearts, What about the pain and the shame and the guilt, the idea that it was my fault in some way? It's really natural that we want to hold on to the fantasy that we can make everything okay if we just do the right thing. You know what? That isn't true. It goes back to that one myth that we talked about before that all suicides are preventable. They're not, right? And we have evidence from this. Jesus could not prevent Judas's suicide without violating his free will. So we're going to go into that a lot more. Now, I do want to say that if you are having suicidal thoughts or if you know of someone who is, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. They can get you support. They can get you assistance from a trained counselor. It's free. If you or a loved one are in immediate danger, call 911. That's the typical recommendations that you get, right? We also have a free course called A Catholic's Guide to Choosing a Therapist that can be helpful if you need to get a therapist for yourself or for someone else that's struggling with suicidal thoughts, desires, or impulses. I'm also going to invite you to let other people know about this episode. Many of you know other Catholics who have experienced the loss of a loved one through suicide. They may benefit. Take the chance. Reach out. Let them know about this episode, episode 76, and also the upcoming episodes, 77 and 78. This podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, is on all the major platforms. You can also hear us at soulsandhearts.com backslash IIC. And this episode can help equip you and others to have those conversations, to be able to reach out more effectively in love to people who are really struggling. I want you to go ahead and remember that we have conversation hours that are available to you. I'm on the phone, 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You're welcome to give me a call. Reach out, call me, 317-567-9594. I'm going to ask that you pray for me and for the other listeners of this podcast. And with that, I want to thank you for being here. And we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. <laughs>